Regime change in South Africa. Trump educates the masses on the fallacies of Adam Smith and David Ricardo. And voting may be introduced for 16-year-olds. All that and more on episode 79 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, the illustrious Anthony Samroff. And him, the delicious Tom Webb. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. So you've been doing a little bit of research, a little bit of cooking the books. I'm not saying that you're a fraudster, but um, on... It's the only cooking I do. You lived in South Africa. I lived, no, I, I lived in Central Africa. I lived in... Oh, I lied then. You did. Okay, let's, 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 let's start the way we need to go on to get it right. Uh, <laughs> try again. <laughs> You um, lived in Central Africa. I did. Yeah. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yeah, and uh, and jolly good fun it was too. Um, however, I mean, what was good about it? It was just a great country for a kid to live in. Uh, what age were you? Uh, between the ages of seven years old and thirteen years old. So uh, it was just an adventure, you know. Uh, really wide open spaces, lots of sunshine. Lots of animals and shit to, you know. And then your parents had to take you away to a cold and dreary area of Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Back to back to Scotland. It's a bit like I don't know if you you hear these stories about uh, back in the back in the day, back in medieval times, uh, like when princes wanted a laugh, they'd go down into the, the town or into the villages and they'd get the find an old tramp and get him drunk. And then they would bring him up to the palace uh, and they would dress him up in fine clothes and sit him on the throne. And uh, when he came round from his drunken stupor, they would try and they would convince him that he was the king. <laughs> and then uh, and everybody would go about bowing to him and things like that and doing what he says. And then they would get him drunk again and then just divest him of all the clothes and then leave him back down the town. And when he woke up, he'd be back in the gutter. And uh, <laughs> they, they, they thought this was a great uh, laugh. It sounds like a really funny thing to do. <laughs> uh, well, that's kind of how I felt. I felt like that tramp waking up uh, after I got back to Scotland and uh, went to a great state comprehensive uh, knot. But anyway, so yeah, I, I, I know Africa. I've spent a lot of time in Africa. I've travelled around much of uh, Central and Southern Africa. Um, I think the only African... Sub-Saharan African, of not African country, I've not been to, is Botswana, um, and that's that's the one with the best mm. economy. Okay, uh, because uh, Suratikama really uh, ruled the country wisely, um, and pretty much had a, a, a capitalistic, not quite a free market, but as free market an economy as you could have for an African country, I would suppose for that time. Uh, however, uh, up to date. <laughs> Um, we know that things changed. The colonial powers pulled out. Um, there was independence. Um, things went from good to worse, especially for Zimbabwe, which was formerly Rhodesia. Rhodesia was the breadbasket of Africa. Uh, it produced most of the food for Southern Africa. And it was a highly successful farming country. Uh, after Robert Mugabe took over, uh, he promised, obviously, that he wasn't going to appropriate land. He was going to honour property mm. rights. But eventually he didn't. He took land by force, or he allowed his thugs to take land by force from white farmers. And it resulted in massive uh, nationwide famine and poverty. 
uh, and that was the situation. Now it seems that South Africa, unfortunately, is poised to go down the same road. Um, just recently, um, South Africa's parliament has passed a motion that could lead, could lead to the seizure of land from white farmers without paying them any compensation. Um, now, in Zimbabwe, a lot of the farmers who initially uh, moved off their land voluntarily and handed it over to, to the government to be redistributed, um, they got compensation from the British uh, for their farms, um, but that was short-lived. But anyway, but the, this law that they voted for was passed by an overwhelming majority of 241 votes to 83 votes against. And the proposal is to amend Section 25 of the Constitution, and that would allow the expropriation of land without any financial recompense. And it was put forward by the radical left. Who would have thought it? Radical left Economic Freedom Fighters Party, whose leader, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, sorry, Julius Malema, I always mix those two guys up. I just... Uh, I get my left-wing thugs mixed up. Julius Malema told the country's parliament, quote, we must ensure that we restore the dignity of our people without compensating the criminals who stole our land. South Africa's new president, Cyril Ramaphosa, said he would speed up the transfer of land from white to black owners after his inauguration two weeks ago, but he stressed it must be conducted in a manner which preserved food production and security. Well, few. Yeah. Uh, but he said he aimed to resolve the issue of racial disparities in property ownership once and for all. So, okay, so racial that's disparities in, yeah. in property ownership. Now, okay, I guess if you could take white farmers to court and prove in a court of law that they got the land by theft, violence, force, then I guess you've got a case. I know that in Zimbabwe... Uh, much of the land that was appropriated was appropriated from farmers who took over the farms and paid uh, what, what do you call it when you pay the, the market paid the market rate for the farms after independence. So we weren't talking about uh, colonialists who rode into South Africa on a horse with a gun and drove people off their land. Many of these farmers were farmers who took up the land uh, on offer from the Zimbabwean government after independence and they were later then uh, driven off that land by gangs of armed thugs after having paid uh, for the land honestly. So, so I don't. That's definitely a violation. So that's definitely definitely a violation of property rights. However, just recently, uh, Zimbabwe, there was a soft coup. Uh, Robert Mugabe, who'd ruled that country for something like forty years, uh, was deposed and sent into exile, or he voluntarily went into exile. And the guy who took over, Mananagua, uh, now he's an, he's a, he's a, he's an old freedom fighter as well, or a, a terrorist if you want to call it that, and he was up to a lot of shenanigans during the, the, the fight for independence. Uh, uh, his hands aren't clean, but what he has said is that he promises to honour uh, and reinstitute property rights because he says this is a, is a way forward. And you could argue probably that if land ever was misappropriated by white farmers, then that was because that the black farmers at the time didn't have any property rights. Mm. Again, property rights were the issue because property rights weren't recognised if that was the case. 
So, so on the one hand, we have the contrast between the new president of Zimbabwe who says he's going to honour property rights and the new president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, who took over after Jacob Zuma was ousted. Jacob Zuma, of course, uh, took over from um, Thabo Mbeki, who in turn took over from uh, Nelson Mandela. Ramaphosa was initially Nelson Mandela's choice to take over the presidency, but uh, that didn't happen. Uh, and Becky took over, and then obviously Jacob Zuma took over, and he has been notoriously corrupt, involved in over a hundred corruption charges mm. uh, before he was uh, ousted from power. Uh, and now it looks like Cyril Ramaphosa, who is one of the wealthiest men in South Africa, while well, he dropped out of power of politics after Nelson Mandela's uh, handover to Tabo and Becky, uh, he got involved in business. One of the wealthiest uh, guys, uh, I think he's probably in the top five wealthy people in uh, in South Africa. Uh, and he was heavily linked with an incident about two, three years ago where miners were on strike. Uh, I think I've got the article here somewhere. Cyril Ramaphosa. You can uh, feel free to chat to the people while I'm just checking this thing out. So... I don't really know that much about South Africa, so I'm getting a bit of uh, education myself here. Okay. Um, well, I, he was a he was a union man. He was a he was a he, he was a, a union man and a, a mine working union guy during the party. But uh, he had um, an investment in a, a mine in South Africa where um, miners had gone on strike. And he used his influence and his money and his power to resolve that strike by violent means. Um, the police opened up on the strikers and shot, I don't know how many it was, I'll probably check that out if anybody knows, they can tell me, but he shot quite a few. And so he's not, he's not uh, immune from, uh, from using force to get his way. And I say he was a shareholder in that mine. So interesting character, very wealthy man, uh, but he seems to be going now going down the path of wanting to be populist and say we're going to appropriate land from white farmers and redistribute it, as if the warning of what happened in Zimbabwe wasn't enough. Yes. Now we're talking about this and this is Africa, however, in this country, in the United Kingdom, we have a guy who could become the president, the Prime Minister of the uh, United Kingdom, um, Jeremy Corbyn, who has said that he uh, would like to appropriate homes from rich people, whatever they are. Rich people is usually somebody that's got more money than you, whoever you are. So he wants to appropriate property from rich people and hand it over to people who are homeless, uh, etc. Which seems like a rather good thing. It's, Good thing to do to help people out who are homeless. Well, he's not doing it with his own money. He's not doing it with the Labour Party's money. He's appropriating that property from other people that he's decided can do without their properties. And I think you would agree with me, Auntie, that once you give government the right uh, or allow government the right to appropriate property, it will, yeah. uh, whether it be your uh, financial wealth or whether it be your, your physical property in terms yeah, of the house. It's, it's pretty much game over for liberty. That's what I've, uh, I've thought. And the thing is, 
Um, he did say it was as a temporary thing, but yeah, uh, I can't remember who said it. Maybe Milton Friedman or maybe Thomas Sowell. There's no such. There's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. Yeah. So sorry, can I just quick? Because I found the thing. It was uh, the Marikana massacre took place on a company called uh, Lawnman, uh, of which he was on, on the board of directors. Uh, at the Marikana's minor strike, which he called dastardly criminal conduct that needed concomitant action to be taken. He later had admitted and regretted his involvement in the act and said that it could have been avoided if contingency plans had been made prior to the labor strike. He's a member of the Venda ethnic group and the first president of South Africa from that group. Okay, anyway. So yeah, he's pretty much involved in that massacre of, of miners. So striking. Um, Nelson Mandela, uh, apart yeah. from the controversies around him as having Ooh, been a free as a freedom fighter, as a terrorist uh, who got jailed, um, what? How do you rate him as a leader? Overrated? Uh, no, I think he. Okay, I was never a big fan of Nelson Mandela. I think he was in prison for a reason. I think he deserved to go to jail. He went to jail because he uh, set about using violent means uh, to cause the overthrow of the government, uh, including he, he planned a bombing campaign. Uh, he could have been out prison, prison longer if he had have renounced violent, uh, violent struggle uh, you know, earlier on, but he didn't do that. However, I think in power, he demonstrated great restraint, great wisdom, and was able to reconcile factions, and was able to uh, to keep the country, kind of unite the country, and give it that feel of, okay, this is the new South Africa, this is uh, something that's for all of us, it's the rainbow nation, etc. However, it was short-lived. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of problems with him. He, his hands aren't clean. His former wife, Winnie Mzilikela Mandela, was involved in a lot of chicanery, including the Mandela football teams, so-called Mandela football team, which were in fact her personal bodyguard and thugs. They were involved in the murder of a young man and one of the key witnesses against the Mandela football team for that murder was sent by Nelson Mandela to Zambia uh, to prison under the, the caretaking of his then friend, Kenneth Kounda of that Zambia. Uh, and as far as I know, that guy is either still in prison or maybe even died in prison. Um, but yeah, he, he was involved in getting rid of that witness. For, so for Mandela. Uh, when it comes to leadership of a nation, there is only shades of crap. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys are all as corrupt as each other. So when it comes to regime change in Africa, uh, it looks like it's cosmetic right. on the outside. I'd, I'd be interested to see how it goes in Zimbabwe with Cyril Ram, uh, with uh, Mananagua. Um, I'm hoping it goes well. It looks hopeful. But then Robert Mugabe looked hopeful in his yeah, initial was stages. Was he supported by Britain to power? He was. So um Indirectly, um, there, it was widely reported during the free and fair elections that brought Robert Mugabe to power that there was widespread intimidation, widespread violence, and widespread um, 
fraud, election fraud that got him into power. Margaret Thatcher at the time had promised uh, members of the white regime, including the general of the army, uh, uh, Sir Peter Walls, that if it was the case that Mugabe got into power and there had been widespread intimidation, then she would uh, she would give the okay for the army to be used to prevent her from coming into power. However, Margaret Thatcher wouldn't answer the phone to uh, Sir P uh, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Walls, um, sorry, General Peter Walls, when he tried to, to get in the phone to her. So, isn't that her kind of job? You mean to answer the phone? Yeah, to, to, <laughs> to a, not answer the to phone. A high ranking member of the military. So, well, I don't know. Anyway, the, the, the bottom line was Mugabe got into power. There was all sorts of promises made by Mugabe that he would honour land rights. And if, if land was to be appropriated, it would be done legally and with compensation. But that never quite uh, transpired. And he, he immediately set about jailing his opposition party members. So it was, it was clear from the get-go is what you're saying that that he was going to be trouble even if yeah. even if beforehand he portrayed himself as a progressive sorry to trigger anyone yeah. but you know what i mean uh, progressive in the good sense yeah so, he was not he was, he was known pretty much as a thug before he got into power okay and that's just like more um kind of foreign meddling or whatever like i don't know i the history in and out but it seems yeah. like uh, we we sometimes have our fingerprints. I hate that we as well. It seems like Western governments also often have their fingerprints yeah. uh, on on things. So, um, as someone could come along and argue that we just um, facilitate people to make their own lives worse, which they would be doing. But so I want to. I'm I am going to circle back to a little bit on Africa and the third world a little bit on the show. If you know anything more on this, if you've got an opinion, please don't hesitate to leave a comment, whether it's live, whether you're tuning in live. We've had eight or nine people tuning yeah. in at one point. If by any chance you're listening to yeah, us from Africa, any, uh, you, yeah. especially South Africa, you can let us know. Or if you're a, a former citizen of that country and you now live here, you can tell us why you moved. If you're watching this in 2022, feel free to leave yeah. a YouTube comment to let us know what you think of the current situation. So I guess this is like Donald Trump Trey has been reading Adam Smith. No, he's forgotten to read Adam Smith. And uh, he is putting trade um, tariffs yeah. on the imports of steel and aluminium and other things. Now, I mean, libertarians have covered free trade at such length yeah. that I want to take a different slant on it because, I mean, you guys are bored of hearing about this stuff. Uh, but I just want to... Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, so I, I want to do a unique take. I want to talk a bit about how the right and the left seem to both dislike free trade and why. But I just want to, you know, you look on the media and, right, Donald Trump saying that EU trade rules make it impossible for American firms to do business with them. And yeah. he says that the US has been taken advantage of. And um, the the EU is already drawing, drawing up a $3.5 billion hit list of retaliatory tariffs. So let's start a trade war, everyone. That will be loads of fun. Um, 
and like please just go online and read the candle the petition of the candle makers by bastia it's yeah. a really really funny essay um no one wants that like how i i'm trying to figure out what it, what order to cover my points and first of all what annoys me is i read things online forbes says trump tariffs could cost as well cost jobs as well as lose them and um of course the fortune says that and for you know fortune says how many american jobs could be lost thanks to tra trump stealing aluminium tariffs and what i hate about these publications which i think are the more pro-capitalist publications yeah. is they have no principles or no philosophy they still buy into the how many jobs are being gained how many jobs are being lost kind of rhetoric um they don't say like what the hell mm. Shouldn't we be able to buy steel from wherever you want without the government getting involved? So that's the principled argument. Yeah. Second of all, they're not making the economic case. They're, they, if you want principles, you need to come to a show like this to actually get any decent media because it's like everything happens in a vacuum, even in the supposedly pro-capitalist publications they don't actually explain to you the ins and outs of why this is wrong and so that that pisses me off the foundation for economic education had a great article printed a few days ago by a guy called tom mullen more i love the title of it which is economics was invented to refute trump's tariff arguments and that is so good because it's so fucking true one of the reasons why adam smith and david ricardo started writing was specifically to get rid of protectionism and economics wasn't so much a distinct field before that. Um, people, philosophers and various people wrote about economics, but it wasn't a distinct field. So yeah, I guess the, the, the thing to bear in mind, just the, the obvious one is that if, if you're getting cheap steel from China, that means every, company in your borders that uses steel can produce a cheaper product so yes yeah, the seen and the unseen the steel workers that are out of a job are conspicuous whereas everyone that's now going to gain employment because products are cheaper uh, are inconspicuous so i guess i thought that trump made these claims about uh, protecting american jobs on the campaign trail because it's very populist you know we identify an enemy and we go oh it's those chinese and and then we can get votes and brian kaplan in his book the the myth of the rational voter explained some that people have systematic prejudices about economics that go against the grain of what economists say and one is on free trade people think that if you're getting something cheap from abroad that is somehow different from getting cheap something cheap from someone down the road i mean why why don't we all just produce our own all of our own stuff and not trade yeah uh, so do you have any comments before i go on no continue i'm enthralled okay well it's like this is this is a problem because both the left and the right seem to have a problem with free trade the right think they're taking our jobs the left think we must be exploiting yeah. them so I've, so tariffs are bad for all of us, really. They're not bad for all of us. They're not bad for the steel workers that who whose jobs who work in America, whose jobs may be protected by the steel tariff. 
okay, their job's protected, but doesn't the cost possibly of the products that they would have to buy in their daily life possibly go up? Yes, so, so you could say that in an ironic fashion, they will benefit from the marginal reduction in costs created by their own redundancy. Okay. And here's another point, right? If steel is a scarce resource, as it becomes more scarce, the value of steel goes up. So by importing cheap steel from China, you're preserving the long-term value of this of the natural resources in your geographical area, actually. Yeah. As I, as I understand it, I mean, I, I don't know much about the economics of it. As I understand it, uh, I've heard this from a lot of people, that Chinese steel is pretty substandard compared to European or, or, or American steel. So, I mean... Why That's put tariffs? Point. Yeah, why put tariffs on it? I mean, if it's good, it's good. If it's not, if it's if it really is substandard, people will, will, will understand that, and then they'll go, okay, why are we buying cheap, uh, substandard steel when we could buy, you know, better steel and and pay extra for it? Well, here's a a point on that, and it is straight out of Atlas Shrugged. Like right. I love this story, but I love to hate this story because it's a true story. Under President Hoover. America manufactured watches that counted a 58 minute hour. Now, Switzerland manufactured. Say that again. The, the, uh, the, the watch was, and you had to wind up the watch every day because for every hour, it would go out of sync of two minutes. Right, go on, yeah. So it took 58 minutes to count an hour. <laughs> Now, the watches that were being imported from Switzerland were superior and yeah. accurate, and you didn't need to reset them every day or two. Um, and what did the American government do? Did they go, right, come on, American watchmakers, pull Get up your, your finger socks? out, yeah, yeah. No, they put a tariff on Swiss watches so that people in America uh, had to buy these inferior American watches. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Swiss... Um, did uh, retaliated by uh, boycotting American cars, typewriters, air conditioning machines, and so forth. Now, the policy is as stupid now as they are then. I mean, look, no one wants to buy American cars because they suck now, right? It wasn't always the case, but it is the case now. American cars suck. Sorry, we're not going to buy them. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So, and General Motors have been bailed out how many times now? Uh, one time is one time yeah. too many. Okay. So well said, sir. So the the important thing to remember is we're not just producers; we're also consumers, and that's where the protectionist um, falls short. But as I said, I wanted to give a new right. I want to talk about the left's objection to free trade because we hear a lot of mixed up commentary on neocolonialism, uh, which for those of you who don't know, it's basically what we call the period after colonialism where we're still getting cheap raw materials from say Africa and South America uh, while selling them our manufactured goods. And um, this has largely been blamed by the left on capitalism, on free markets, right? Yeah. Now, you could say, yeah, yeah, well, it's a voluntary exchange. They're obviously benefiting. Now, that would be true if it were an even playing field. Okay. And what I feel like is libertarians have not done a great job 
or I've not seen any libertarian commentary or much libertarian commentary on this because I was in my checkered, like my uh, my shirt, checkered uh, my checkered past, a leftist. I had some books and things like that that I read, and I was able to go back and read them from a libertarian perspective and go, you're missing the mark on this. Like, yes, you're presenting good information, but your analysis of that information is all wrong. So, because what we have from the right is, oh no, we went into these countries and we made them better. And what we had from the left is, oh, we went in and we exploited them. And that's the, the mainstream view. And we exploited them by giving them jobs. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Okay. So I want, I'm going to d deliver a little bit of a, um, history uh, from a libertarian perspective of neocolonialism, which isn't something I've heard before. I am expanding on this on my forthcoming book, Universal Basic Income, For and Against. So st stay tuned for my next ebook. So the left love to have vacuous slogans like fair trade, not free trade, right? They never define what they mean by free trade, or by fair trade. They never acknowledge that free trade isn't even what we've got just now. I mean, there's loads of stuff that we're basically prohibited from uh, importing mm. from third world countries. And uh, they never care to mention that they intend to impose this fair trade, however the fuck you define that, by force on the people of planet Earth. What you do find is, I mean, Benjamin Powell did this. He went to the third world. He's an economist. He's great. Look him up. And he found that in the sweatshops, they were actually typically paying three to six times what those people would be getting otherwise. Johan Norberg has reported that as well, another economist. But it's not like any company can go into any country in Africa or South America or Indonesia um, you know, and do business just like that. There are severe restrictions, some of them imposed domestically by the governments there, and um, there may be regulations on this end as well. So what would happen if any company could go in is by market forces they'd bid up the, they'd bid up the price of labor, there'd be more factories, and with those factories comes infrastructure and skills and tr and ancillary firm firms crop up to supply the foreign factories, right? In some places in Africa, it takes 36 months to open up a business, to get a license to open up a business, and you have to pay off uh, the police and officials and things like that. Mm. So it isn't like... It isn't a free market situation and Western companies can take advantage of wages being lower than they would be uh, in a more open economy. Do you have something to comment on that? No, continue. Yeah. So here's the thing. The, in the 1970s, when the price of oil increased, the Middle Eastern countries um, saw as a solid, uh, they sold their new fund, they, sorry, they invested their wealth and western banks and those banks invested the money in the third world and that was considered to be a sound investment because companies don't tend to disappear the way that unsuccessful corporations do but unfortunately most of the money that the western banks lent to the third world was to military governments and tyrants and their 
people who had no intention of spending that money on the welfare of the people. Now, obviously, as a libertarian, you might not want them to be borrowing that money to spend on the welfare of their people. But nonetheless, they the governments borrowed the money in the name of the people. So um, what happened was they, they gained a great debt. And that allowed pan-financial financial authorities established in the West, like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, to go into those countries and insist, you need to increase your exports to pay off those debts. Now, what not being Adam Smithians or Ricardians, the people uh, but in the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, you know, this has been called neoliberalism, I wish I wish that people define neoliberalism differently from libertarianism. Um, then take into well, it doesn't help when the Adam Smith Institute go around calling themselves what neoliberals. What a bunch of idiots! <laughs> you know, you could have done brand differentiation. Yeah. we can we can return to that. Okay, so basically, these gangsters, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, go in and say you need to increase your exports to pay off yeah. this debt. Now, what happens when you increase the exports? Well, supply and demand, there was a glut in the market for these goods that third world countries were forced to to, to sell. And the, the, the price of those goods went through the floor. So they didn't necessarily didn't necessarily help those nations become rich. Now you could say that this was done deliberately, or you could just say that states are stupid and and and, and they don't know any better. It doesn't really matter. The fact is this pushed back the speed of development in many nations yeah. in Africa. And this was blamed by the leftists who were commenting on it, on capitalism. How do they define capitalism? They never do. So it definitely wasn't a consequence of free market capitalism, though we could say that. So then... Can we, yeah. Would it be right in saying much of this money that was lent to... Uh, developing countries by the World Bank and IMF was actually money appropriated from taxpayers in uh, in developed countries. I mean, I've always I've often heard foreign aid described as a mechanism by which poor people in rich countries give money to rich people in poor countries, and it's what they've in a, in effect done is they've saddled first world countries with that or first world taxpayers yeah. with that third world debt. When the when the IMF or when people say we should cancel the debt to these countries, yeah, they mean great, brilliant idea. But guess who doesn't cancel the debt? The bank who issued that debt in the first place, i.e., the IMF or the World Bank, who actually issued the debt, the debt, they just transfer the debt onto the first world countries. So the first world countries continue to pay that debt. So the debt doesn't actually get cancelled. It's equivalent of somebody saying. Tom, you have to you have to lend and he's down his luck. You have to lend him five thousand pounds, okay? But if he uh, and I say, well, I can't. So, so we'll guarantee that. But if, however, if Anthony doesn't pay you back, you still have to you still you have to. But right, let me start again. You have to lend Anthony five thousand pounds. Well, I don't have five thousand pounds. So that's okay. We'll lend you it. <laughs> we'll lend you it to lend to Anthony. However. Should Anthony not be able to pay that debt back to you, we don't care. You still owe us yeah, five thousand pounds. Okay, um, so that, that's kind of how it works there. Sorry, to great. No, you. no, yeah. no, no. That's great. I, lo I love the back and forth. So that internet, like, um, 
foreign aid. Yeah. I'm going to expand on that a little bit. Okay. During this period, the Africa and South Africa were largely selling natural resources to Western corporations. Yeah. And though the money that African and South African countries, I, I single them out because they're the main, they're not the, it was also in Asia to a degree, right? They were spending the income on manufactured goods from Western countries. Well, because, but not because of free trade, because actually what one thing was a lot of the foreign aid said, we'll give you this money, but you have to buy stuff from our country yeah. and if for us to give you this money. So it was corporate welfare. Yeah. But another thing is- And we, they'd, be, they'd be preferred companies that they would yeah. have to do business with. Yeah, they yeah. might be campaign contributors. They might be, uh, vote, you know, uh, voting blocks. You, you never know. They might be people, there might be a round robin from government into industry, from industry into government, now I'm an MP. So this was happening. And the thing is, countries in Europe and North America put up trade barriers and saying, no, we're not going to import manufactured goods from these countries because it'll be bad for our manufacturers here. Yeah. And, and this is because the labor costs were so low in the third world, even lower, maybe even lower than they are now, yeah. that if you just said, well, Africa and North Africa, uh, and we, we, can, we can allow them to have manufactured goods, then all these companies would go there and they would open up their factories there instead of here and they would get their own manufacturing industries. So you could say, if you were going to be cynical, you could argue that these policies were implemented deliberately to keep poor places poor for as long as possible so that rich Western corporations could import cheap natural resources from them rather than deal with competition from cheaper manufacturers in those poor countries they want, uh, and who would be able to take advantage of the low labor costs, right? And because there weren't many libertarians in the world at the time, and because the right-wingers were more like I'd say ideological conservatives, rather than having a coherent philosophy, they weren't there to say, this isn't caught, but plus the right are protectionists anyway. Yeah. They weren't around to say, no, 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 this isn't being caused by free markets. This isn't being caused by capitalism. This is being caused by state intervention. And I would add that during this period, living standards in those countries did still increase. Yeah. It's not like things were getting worse there. I mean, regularly you saw famines in Africa in the 80s, 70s, 60s, going back, right? We haven't seen massive famines in the 90s or in the, the thousands, very, very rarely. So things have improved, but you could argue they would have improved a lot faster. Yeah. So there's there's just a, yeah, I said, I I reckon that if free trade had been a thing, you know, for the last hundred years, there's a good chance that the there wouldn't be that much poverty. I mean, I don't know what um, kinds of governments they might they might have had still had some terrible governments in Africa and South America. So they they could have had domestic 
governments whose policies were so bad in terms of property rights that they still didn't develop. But even so, even if a few places got it right, that could create a domino effect where people said, well, you know, I don't know, Somalia is doing really great. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, but, why don't you move to Somalia, man? <laughs> I want to make a point in Somalia because because libertarians see when anyone says, well, Somalia is an anarchy and look, they're not exactly doing great. Just say to someone, see if you said to someone, you can build a ship without a central column. You can build one that's got ribs to the side of it. And they went and they pointed you to a, a sunken ship with a broken central column and went, well, look at that one. That one's not got a central column and that one's sunk. Uh, would you go like, would you say that was a fair analogy? Um, Somalia is a failed state and most of the violence that's happened there is because of like the religious fundamentalist Muslims and the interventionists that are trying to impose a state. But I digress. Okay, so I just want to make one more point. Well, my, my ultimate point is I am not saying, and it's unfortunate that the alt-right the alt-right need to watch this presentation because they like to say, oh, no, we did nothing but good in, in these countries which we colonized. That's like neither story is true. Yeah. But the main point should just be to say European nations have sometimes done a great deal of damage in some places in the developing world yeah. through colonialism, uh, propping up dictators, expropriating natural resources, dumping unwanted food projects like i don't mean they didn't want the food produce i mean we we subsidized our farmers and we produce too much food and we go what we're we going to do to that oh send it to africa that puts the growers there out of business and stops them from developing yeah right our leaders have given aid in the form of arms to dictators um, and help them impress their people. And other times we've stipulated that a high percentage of aid money given to poor countries is spent on the stuff produced here that wasn't wanted or needed by them. So that's just corporate welfare. But one way we've not damaged the third world is by free trade. In fact, we're damaging them by not engaging in free trade. And that's the case that should be put forward to shut these lefties up and also give them an education in economics and that's my final word shutting lefties up so that's the alternative history of neocolonialism uh stay tuned for my book yeah the universal man. get the kettle can get the kettle on on all right so that's us drinking coffee our coffees here afternoon all native populations grew exponentially when colonialism sorted them with plumbing, plumbing medicine, medicine education, education, law, trade, and e increased economic activity. Well, this is, this is true to an extent. Uh, I know that certainly in Rhodesia, um, before it became, after the, the colonial power, after Britain took control of Rhodesia, I know that the, the native population there went from about a, a million people, or, or less even than a million people, it rose exponentially. And it, one of the reasons that the black population grew and outstripped the white population is because we actually helped them to do that. We provided them with medical and care and, and better medicine, better conditions, and that's why the population grew. So, the, and the, 
and the seeds of our uh, benevolence, which the kind of was the seeds of our destruction as well, to that degree. Well, yes, um, of course, the biggest, the best way to combat um, overpopulation, yeah. if you believe it's a thing, is development. Because whenever, whenever there's an industrial revolution, there's a population boom. But when people get good living conditions, they have less children. It just seems to happen. It's so, part of the survival mechanism in the human being. Say after 9-11, yeah. there was a massive surge in birth rates because people felt at risk. So they had more babies. It's, it's just for the survival of the species. The HC also says, uh, talking about Africa, their elites didn't bother to reinvest or maintain themselves in post-colonial times. Instead, using blame and now staggering around on foreign aid with tribal corruption fighting over government power. A lot of truth in that as well. Yeah, I would um, just, you know, well, that, that in Zaire, uh, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, Mbuto says his echo was putting away a staggering amount of the country's wealth into a Swiss bank account per something ridiculous per month. It was like mil millions of dollars per month. Something like 50, I'm sure it's something like 50 million dollars per month into a Swiss bank account to enrich himself. Um, so, yeah, the corruption, and I'm not saying it's endemic to the people themselves. It's hard to get a handle on this. Look, there's corruption, there's corruption in the West. We just don't call it corruption, we call it lobbying. Yeah, but yeah, right? I know, I know, I agree. They're a lot more blatant about it in Africa, yeah. you know, and if you don't. Whether it's Mugabe, whether it's Ramaphosa, whether it's Kounda in Zambia, if you're the big man, if you're Buana Makubwa, if you don't, if you're the tribal leader, which is what you are when you're a leader of African nation, if you don't look after yourself, your family, your tribe, yeah, you're corrupt. You're morally corrupt. That's corruption. They have a different ethical yeah. code. So here, you're meant to employ the best person for the job, otherwise yeah. you're corrupt. But in other cultures. One of the things is you're meant to take care of your family. You're meant to take, give your uncle the job. Yeah. You're meant to, someone did you a favor, so you're meant to do them a favor. And if you don't do that, people are like, what, you know, what yeah. are you doing? There, yeah. There's something you're wrong yeah, with you're you're yeah. under that culture. And that is one of the reasons why Africa has not developed as quickly. And I'm not saying this as, you know, a right winger. Like, the, the, I've seen um, lefty, uh, YouTube channels like the School of Life talk about this. I just have one point. I want to tell you this story. This is a great story. It's from Rome. Caesar was doing invasions in Africa, and one of his techniques was to go to a village, kill everyone, and stack up the bodies in a pile, and then he'd go to the neighboring villages and get the chiefs from each of them and say, come here, come here, we've got something to show you and set, showed them the pile of the dead bodies, and they'd all go, okay, do whatever you want, you can come in, rule, you know, no questions asked. Um, he was succeeded by Augustus Caesar, I believe, who's made, who created the slogan, let's make peace our war. And he had, he was inspired by Caesar's idea. So when he was doing invasions in Africa, he'd go to a village and build an aqueduct and sewers and uh, whatever it was, plumbing. He he brought some infrastructure. He sent engineers. Yeah, what when, have the Romans ever done yeah, for us? <laughs> he went to the neighboring villages, got the chieftains together, and said, "Look at this," and produced exactly the same result. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that was. I don't think it was. I think he'd done that in in, in Europe as well. 
I think it was just his modus operandi, Augustus. Yeah, to it? send in engineers rather than armies. And if that so, didn't impress him, then he obviously fell back on the piles of dead bodies. So, <laughs> so what? what I, that one up so I'm just waiting for those space aliens from outer space, those uh, Rothbardians, they're called, to come down to Earth and go, here, we're going to give you tra like high-speed teleportation devices and stuff like that and overthrow our corrupt leaders. Um, so, a uh, quick one from uh, Adam Smasher. Also, as higher steel prices reduce demand for native steel, they could lose their jobs in the long term. Okay. Um, what are we moving on to next? 16-year-old okay. voters? 16-year-olds getting the vote. Okay. Uh, I understand. Okay, here in Scotland, 16-year-olds are already allowed to vote in local elections and in the Scottish parliamentary elections. 16-year-olds currently are not allowed to vote in the national elections or European elections. I believe that England is looking to follow suit with extending suffrage to 16-year-olds. Uh, and I believe America and certain states in America, they're looking into this as well because we, hey, we've got to listen to the kids. The kids know what it's all about. And it's about the kids are all listen. right. The kids are all right. The kids know what it's at, man. So, look, what do we think about this? What do we think about 16-year-olds getting the vote? I'm against it. I'm against it. Well, you're, you're pretty much against anybody having the vote. I am. Yeah, and I'm not too sure I like people having a vote either of any age. But if I was going to, if I was going to issue people with the vote, um, for I, my ideal situation is if you, you, you can vote if you're a net tax payer. Um, but what? Like, if Are you, you advocating people should pay tax? Not really. I said if you're going to have the vote, then it should. Then you should be paying. Then you should have it basically be paying into the system. So Failing if you're that, so if you're working and producing. Well, but then there's an argument against that as well because you could say, well, I'm in a family, right? I work. My wife doesn't, but she does take care of the kids. So in a way, she she's paying into the system because um, we've got a division of labour. But I guess I would be for very. I would be for a voting exam. Um, Brian Kaplan mentioned this. He is actually. But then who sets the exam and what questions well, do they, they ask? Well, that's the problem. Yeah. They, but they did display. They did show that you could ask completely neutral questions that were non-partisan. Yeah. And they would be a. Uh, good disqualifier for people who knew nothing. I, they might just be something like name the leader of this party that you want to vote for or something like that. Um, I think the, the thing is, fundamentally, people do not have the expertise to vote. How much do you need to know? Like economics, um, social science, sociology, um, statecraft, um, political philosophy and um, logic and um, you know there's so many there's so much that you need to know and you're it, do we do we want to vote on what color of socks like tam has to wear i mean where do you draw the line what are people allowed to vote on this is the question like is everything up for grabs do well you, i guess look in a libertarian society there wouldn't be much to actually vote about because the government would only really be a, cust a custodian or an administration. There wouldn't really, be, you know, there'd be nothing mm. to actually vote about. 
Um, so I guess that what I... is the job of a leader, right? Supposing we have a country on minarchist principles to ensure people's negative rights. If you're aggressed against, you've got recourse, you've got some national defense, and they've got courts. Now, the interesting thing is courts predate states, and the state assimilated court systems, and in my opinion, made them worse, right? Because okay. at least back then you had case law, which is judges would make judgments, and you know, judges could consult the, the judgment of prior people and say, wow, he had a really good idea there, yeah, yeah. and they could improve upon it, or they could take the ideas that other people had, but people would gain a reputation for being a good judge. But let's say you've got a state apparatus. Why do you even need a, what? What do you need the government for? What What are they there to do? Yeah, um, yeah. They're, they're, well, exactly. So, what are you actually voting for? You You're only voting in uh, an administration. Um, so you wouldn't have to even look at a manifest. Well, look. Here's Here's how I see it. That the absurdity that we have, and I've mentioned this before mm -hmm. in the show. The absurdity that we have here in Scotland. Okay, we have to decide how old is 16, okay? If you can indeed decide the destiny of a nation at 16, if you can make an informed choice about who should be in charge, uh, then there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be able to have a drink or a smoke. Yeah. And it, or send naughty pictures of yourself over the yeah, internet. And people have gone to trouble from that. Yeah. So, but the thing is, the main reason why they want to introduce 16... It's cynical. Yeah, it's because, well, I mean, great for government. They don't have many productive skills, thanks to crappy government skills. They're going to want free stuff. They're not taxpayers, so they're not going to be like, eh, I don't really want that government program yeah. and stuff like and that. teenagers are naturally rebellious. More let I mean, you know, the old one, if you're not a socialist when you're 20, you're heartless. If you're yeah. still a socialist when you're 40, you're brainless. And if you're still a socialist when you're 50, you're Scotty. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I guess it's just more bribocracy. It's another group of people to bribe. Yeah. I think, I, again, I keep on coming back to Brian Kaplan, the myth of the rational voter. Um, he's got, he says that... In political science, if you ask a political science, do you think that people vote rationally, they'll say no, but it's okay because 40% of people will be irrational to the left, 40% of people will be irrational to the right, 20% will have an informed opinion and they will prevail. But it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. People have systematic wrong biases about economics and that's why I am... Um, he, he talks about how people forget all the stuff they learn about in school, how people forget all the stuff they need to know to cast a good vote, even if they're taught it in civics. So he says the one way to make sure that people are informed that really works is pay them. You know, make them sit an exam every f five years and they get... Make them sit an exam? No, no, no. They're, they can volunteer to sit an exam every five years and they get paid £50 for doing it by the state. And they will do it. They will do it. They will learn Where about it. Where would the state get that 50 pounds? Well, through the tax system. Ooh. He's not saying he's not saying he supports this policy because right. he is an anarcho-capitalist, but he says it is a policy that would work if this is the outcome you want. And would you pay, would you, given that we, the government gives out money left, right and centre, if it's going, and by the way, this is a point, when people are more 
well-informed, they tend to have the positions that economists have. Yeah, but how do you prevent the government from uh, propagandizing as opposed to informing? I don't know. I don't know if you can do it. You'd Would have you have, have a cross-party sort of no, committee? You, you have a you have a non uh, you have third wing like non-government agencies look uh, produce the quiz or or something like that. You but know? then the government today is going to decide on what one they're going to go for. So and, and unless you I have a cross party, a cross party committee. Jason Brennan, a guy who wrote a book called Against Democracy, um, sounds good to me. Uh, I've not read it. I heard him on an interview, and he said they have actually produced quizzes that are basically non-partisan because they don't ask your opinions on anything. They just they just check you for for knowledge. Okay. And um, so you can you can we can we can follow that up if you want us to, or you can follow that up at home. There is no minimum. Katrina Angus, hi Katrina. There is no minimum age for paying tax. There is no minimum age for paying tax. The UK tries that to stop simple people from voting. Do you have a before. source for that, Katrina? I'd really like to know. There is no minimum age for An paying exam tax. To vote. So she's against. She's, the UK tried to stop like simple people from voting people. before. I'm, okay. I'm for stopping as many people as possible from voting under as many pretexts as you can think of. Uh, the Scottish. The Scottish Council in Edinburgh. Uh, Edinburgh. Yeah, I like that. Shows young people. Just out of the indoctrination camps of modern Scots schools are probably going to vote for virtue signalling parties. No yeah, question, no about, question it. about it. Yeah. Two minutes to go. Anything? Any final points to make? Well, no, I was hoping Katrina would maybe get back to us on the. Uh, so there's no minimum age for for paying tax. No. So, but then there's a minimum age that you can work at, though. So you, surely you can't pay tax unless you work. I'm guessing. So labor laws, child labor laws are ruining child this country. labor laws are ruining this country. I think if, so. If you work and contribute, should you be allowed to vote? Well, that was my original proposal. The problem being, it's inegalitarian along gender lines, and it being International Women's Day, yeah. I can't advocate that policy oh, today. I need to oh, I, international I just did it to Women's annoy Day, you. and I don't give. A I don't monkeys. mind. I don't mind. Uh, I like some of some of the. People who have touched my life most deeply have been women. That's one of what you're going to yeah. say there. <laughs> uh, you pay that even if you're a youngster. So I think okay. with that, unless you want to briefly mention the Britain, do do Britain first in sixty seconds. Britain first, okay. The leadership of Britain first movement, uh, both the leader and deputy leader here in the UK, have been uh, jailed. Um, jailed because apparently they were saying horrible things about Muslims. Um, that They've been charged with hate crime. I don't know what a hate crime is, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, either something's a crime or it isn't. What your motivation for doing it, in my is. view, is completely irrelevant. Uh, you know, uh, take that, you perfectly reasonable and nice man uh, said nobody ever before right. they hit somebody. Right? Right. You know, so... Yeah, so Either it's harassment or it's not. 
if it's they said it was racially motivated racially and religious motivated if it's harassment, harassment it's a violation of the nap if it's not it doesn't matter what the i don't particularly like britain's is. first i don't really agree with them um however i think it's a dangerous road if you can start jailing people for expressing opinions no matter how unsavory i think there was a situation where uh, one of the the members whether it was the deputy or the leader herself rapped on somebody's window who was a muslim and called them a pedo um i don't think well it probably wasn't funny for the person um if it was untrue then i guess that's a horrible thing to do um if it was true it's the least they deserve yeah it's the least they deserve so i don't know until next time uh, don't go rapping in anybody's window and call them a pedo be libertarians yeah don't be lefty or righty. righty